Well, this morning, uh, I'm going to preach a message entitled, When Joy Plays Defense. When Joy Plays Defense. Um, Ultimately, uh, we're going to look at just the first three verses um, as we kick off this paragraph of verses 1 through 11 that Pastor Dave read for us this morning during our scripture reading. And we're just really going to set the stage in these first three verses of really the entire chapter, this third chapter uh, in this book of Philippians. And uh, really, Paul is just going to continue to build on really the teaching that he has, has layered into this point. And he's going to anchor our hearts and our minds on this admonition, this imperative, this challenge of rejoicing in the Lord as he kicks off this, this new thought and this new paragraph. And so when, when joy plays defense, uh, this is kind of where my mind and my heart went as I was uh, studying through these few verses. And uh, I, I enjoy athletics. Um, I enjoy uh, the, the competitive nature of athletics. And um, ultimately, defense came to mind as I was looking at these these few verses and considering some of the context. And you might have heard one of the most famous uh, quotes in regard to defense in the sphere of athletics. All right, have you heard this saying before? Defense wins what? Championships. Defense wins champions. How many of you ever heard that, that quote before? Okay, yeah, some of you. And it's interesting, as I was kind of just pulling some of this together and, and looking at some different research, I found that that quote is actually just uh, the second half of a broader quote. And uh, I don't know if, if you knew this, but I certainly did not. And uh, this quote comes from the great Bear Bryant, uh, one of the greatest college football coaches that probably ever has lived and ever will live from the coach at the University of Alabama. And the first part of this quote actually says this, offense sells tickets, but defense wins Championships, And isn't that true in the modern era of sports? If you've ever turned on uh, a sports game and watched it here recently, you can see all the, uh, the commercialization of athletics. You can see the marketing, uh, the incredible marketing aspect of athletics. And even as uh, a young boy, I can remember wanting to really just play offense. Uh, my son Grayson's playing some fall baseball right now and uh, one of the, his favorite things to do is, is to what? In baseball, it's to hit. Um, fielding and uh, catching and, and throwing and learning different positions, you know, that's, that's just kind of an add-on to really the most important part of the game in his mind, which is hitting. Dad, give me a bat and let's just swing for the fences, right? Let's hit the home run. Let's, let's hit the ball hard. He wants to play offense. And every little kid that plays basketball, they want to be the Michael Jordan or the LeBron James that hits that last second shot, right? I can remember as a young boy in my uh, driveway, right, doing the countdown from three, two, one, and doing that fadeaway jump shot just like Michael Jordan, and I always hit it to win the game, and, and that's always fun. We all want to play offense, but ultimately, at the end of the day, defense wins championships, and in these first few ver- verses of chapter number three, Paul is anchoring his readers on the importance of defense, and this defense that he's going to draw their attention to is in the most unlikely means of this topic of joy. 
You see, Paul is gonna contend that rejoicing in the Lord, having joy in Christ, is one of the greatest defensive aspects of our Christian life. And so we're gonna build on those realities as we continue to work uh, through this text. But let's read these first three verses that we're gonna cover this morning. Philippians chapter number three, verse number one. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Our passage here in Philippians chapter number three, again, Paul is, is doing just that. He's laying out this strategy of defense that will keep the other team from scoring. And in this case, the, the stakes are much higher. We're not talking about some leisurely backyard game. We're not talking about some temporal aspect of, of earthly sports, of football, basketball, or baseball. We're talking about life. We're talking about real life. We're talking about spiritual warfare. And eternity literally is at stake. And so in Paul's mind, the stakes are high. In Paul's mind, rejoicing and having joy in the Lord, this defensive strategy, when joy plays defense, uh, he very much has uh, the highest sense of urgency as he kicks off this, this new thought for the church at Philippi. So our big idea of our text this morning is this, rejoicing in the Lord causes our minds to thwart the snares of false teaching and allows our hearts to remain fully satisfied in the gospel as we glory in Christ Jesus. I'll read that just one more time so you, if you are taking notes, you have the opportunity to jot it down. Rejoicing in the Lord causes our, our minds to thwart the snares of false teaching. It allows our hearts to remain fully satisfied in the gospel as we glory in Christ Jesus. So when joy plays defense, rejoicing in the gospel, finding joy in the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is as, it's as much of a defensive characteristic than it is offensive. Certainly we can deploy joy, we can, we can pursue rejoicing in the Lord, but ultimately it's more of a shield that we put up in times of difficulty, when difficult circumstances knock on the door of our life and our heart, when we're doubting what is going on. When question marks are swirling around us, when life seems to be chaotic, when we have lost hope, when burdens are heavy in our life, when relationships fail, when we're taken advantage of, when we're hurt in so many different ways because of the ugliness of sin in this world, ultimately, joy, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, this is a shield that will guard us and protect us from the fiery darts of the evil one. It will allow us to keep our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And so, so for Paul, rejoicing in the Lord, this wasn't just some theoretical concept 
This was something that he lived and that he walked every single day of his life. Let's remember Paul's circumstances as he's writing this letter. Where's he at? He's in prison, right? He's actively suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ. And he writes this letter to the church at Philippi. He knows his life could be at the end. He literally could become a martyr any second, any moment of any day. And what does he encourage them to do? Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Defense, as a pastor, as an elder here at the church, Andy, Dave, and I, shepherds of the flock, were called to do what? Called to guard and protect the church from predators that lurk in the tall grasses. Knowing that there is a roaring lion that walketh about this, seeking whom he may devour. This is the reality of life. As a pastor and as an elder, we find great joy in offensively leading the flock to green pastures, equipping them to do the work of the ministry teaching, preaching God's word, coming alongside in times of need and counseling and helping and encouraging. But ultimately, the other side of our job description is to do what? To defensively protect the flock from the wolves, from the predators, from those that would be seeking out the sheep and the flock, looking to isolate one from from the flock to be able to take them down. And so this defensive mindset that Paul has, we see this often throughout the word of God as we consider different roles and responsibilities in the church. Defense wins championships. In the Christian life, defense sustains our heart in the gospel. So this morning, we're gonna look just at three simple observations of this defensive strategy that Paul lays out in our first Observation is coming directly from verse number one. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. The first point is this. We see the clear command to rejoice in the Lord. And I, I kind of got a little bit of a chuckle here as I was just in my own mind studying and researching. I find it interesting that Paul, at the beginning of chapter three, essentially in the middle of his letter, issues this first word finally. Uh, Paul's a preacher at heart, isn't he? Right, right here in the middle of the letter, he's, he's calling out his, his last point, and uh, you have to be mindful of preachers when they say, my last and final point. Right, that's just kind of an introduction to the second wind of the sermon, right? And I, I may or may not be guilty of that from time to time, right? So, so Paul, in, in true pastoral form, he calls out this word, finally, um, and ultimately, this, this word isn't necessarily signaling his final thoughts, but this word can also be translated as now then or besides. And it, really, this word is a transition to a new thought. And so Paul obviously has much more teaching that he's going to lay out for us in these final two chapters of the book of, of Philippians. But now we're, we're transitioning to this new thought, and Paul kicks it off right here with finally, and then he says what? My brothers. And again, I have 
anchored and lingered at this phrase often as Paul alludes to this relational connection that he has with the church at Philippi. There's this affection, there's this desire, there's this love that Paul has for the church at Philippi. So he says, now then, my brothers. He's appealing to what this affectionate relationship that he has with them to help them draw in for this new line of thinking. This new thought that he's about to lay out, this new teaching. So they would sit up and remember, okay, yeah, this is, this is my brother in Christ. I need to listen. I need to hear. This is a brother who cares for me, who loves me, who desires me to understand and know and to live in the gospel. So finally, my brothers, he cares for them. And as such, he's going to speak the truth of God's word to them. And so then he admonishes them. Here's the imperative to do what? Rejoice in the Lord, the clear command to rejoice in the Lord. This is going to point us to one of the key themes in this entire letter to the church at Philippi. It's what? It's joy. You can see on our slide in that, that bottom corner, you'll see Philippians partnering in the gospel. This is the overarching theme of Philippians, but there's, there's a sub-theme that you could really see just really sprinkled throughout every chapter, and it is this topic of joy that he desires the Christian to, to have joy in Jesus. That the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his person and his work, it's not just some academic knowledge, but it's, it's something to anchor our heart in, a sure and steady anchor for our soul. And so joy is gonna continue to carry on as this strong and heavy sub-theme through the, the rest of the book of Philippians. Paul's imperative to rejoice in the Lord, it's, a, it's again, it's a stark reminder of the reality of the circumstances that Paul is living in prison, suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ, the uncertain future even of this church at Philippi, the individuals, the couples, the families, the persecution that they may endure in the days ahead. And he's challenging them to rejoice in the Lord. This entire letter is just dripping with joy. How can it be such a joyfully focused letter when Paul's writing it from prison? It's because joy is defensive. Joy sees beyond our present circumstances. It instructs our hearts rejoicing in the Lord. It instructs our heart and our mind to move beyond our feelings and anchors our soul in the security and the unfailing hope that we have in our risen Savior. Friends, think about it. Jesus has defeated the grave. He's defeated the grave. What can this world do unto me? The worst they can do is take my life, and guess what? To be absent with the body is present with the Lord. Amen. It's a win-win situation for the believer. This side of eternity and the next, we can rejoice in the Lord and in all circumstances, whether good or bad, because Jesus is risen. And this is an incredible hope for us. And so really not only through the book of Philippians, but the entire New Testament challenges us over and over again to rejoice in the Lord. So friends, church, let us do just that. Let us hear and receive and obey this admonition to simply rejoice how and in what? In the Lord. 
no matter what you may be facing, no matter what, whether the loss of my dad just over a year ago, whether the loss of of Maxine's husband just a week ago, whether the loss of of a dear friend, Emily Shelt from some in this, this church, no matter what you may be going through, a difficult diagnosis, a loss of a job, the most incredible circumstances that you could face, we can rejoice. So no matter heavy, no matter how heavy that burden may be, no matter how weary your legs may feel, by God's grace, take a step towards joy this morning. Remember what Jesus has done. Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We're gonna hear this again in just another chapter. Psalm 16, verse number 11, you make known to me the paths of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Rejoice, church. Rejoice and be glad. Paul makes a clear command for the church to rejoice in the Lord. Do you remember our big idea? Rejoicing in the Lord causes our minds to thwart the snares of false teaching and allows our hearts to remain fully satisfied in the gospel. Jesus is enough. We don't need the comfortable nature of desirable circumstances to bring joy. We don't need that to settle our heart and mind. We only need Jesus. This is how joy plays defense. It instructs our hearts and our minds to remain steadfast in the personal work of Jesus. We are called to rejoice in the Lord, not in circumstances, not in your bank account, not in your job title, not in your skills or abilities, but rather we are called to rejoice in the Lord. So the beauty of rejoicing in the Lord is this, that there's always cause for rejoicing because the tomb will always be empty. That's never gonna change. That work is done, it is finished. He has paid for our sin. And there is hope for us today. So Paul makes this clear command for the church to rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 73, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is why we can count it all joy when we fall into various kinds of trials. Do you remember our series through the book of James? Friends, do you need this reminder like the church at Philippi needed this reminder? It's so easy to not rejoice in the Lord. Is that not true? Isn't it so easy for us to focus in on our present circumstances and the hope and beauty of the gospel to become dim and fade into the background? So why does Paul continually have to remind the church over and over again to rejoice, to rejoice, to pursue joy, to remember the joy in Jesus Christ, to rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice, to say right here, rejoice in the Lord over and over again. Why? Because, friends, do you feel the struggle and the tug and the pull 
of this world. You remember the old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? Where it proclaims, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Friends, I need to be reminded this morning to rejoice in the Lord. So the second half of verse number one says this, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Again, I can... uh, resonate with with Paul's statement here. Sometimes as a preacher, as a pastor, elder of of this church, along with uh, Dave and Andy, we find different themes and and different points and different uh, interpretations that just seem to resurface over and over again. And so as a preacher of the word of God, hey, you know what? For me to say the same thing, it's no problem for me, but I understand sometimes for you, you may like, okay, Eric, we get it. Rejoice in the Lord. Eric, we get it. God is sovereign. Eric, we get these things that just seem to come up over and over again. So Paul knows. He's aware that he's repeated this command a few times already. He knows that uh, human nature is to what? Maybe dismiss the familiarity of a specific point or item. And so he calls it out. He calls it out and says, hey, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, but here's where he raises the stakes and he reminds them of something very important, this phrase, and is safe for you. And is safe for you. The New American Standard translates this phrase and it is a safeguard for you. Paul anchors them Enjoy, why? Because it is a safeguard for them. This is how joy plays defense. Now you may be asking the question, defense against what or whom? Well, here we go. Let's transition to our second point. We've looked at the clear command to rejoice in the Lord. And point number two, we'll observe the counterfeit identity of false teachers. The counterfeit identity of false teachers. So the call to rejoice is a defensive move against the false teachers of their day. And in turn, the false teachers of our day, as we bridge the gap of time and make application for our own lives in our own context right here. So joy is a safeguard against the empty promises of other false gospels that we see present in our day. One commentator describes joy in this way, rejoicing in the Lord is like a shield protecting Christians from the flaming darts of false teaching that Satan's servants are shooting at the Philippians. Joy is like an umbrella that guards the Philippian church against the uh, torrential downpour of influence and impact of false teachers in their day. So it's a safeguard against false teachers. Paul has already addressed the topic of false teachers in this study through the book of Philippians. But here is desire. His desire is that they identify these false teachers for what they are. Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. First, Paul describes them as dogs. Paul would, would use this familiar term as, as Jews would have used this phrase to describe 
the Gentiles. Namely, why? Because of their, um, their lack of a strict kosher diet. The idea was, is that Gentiles would just eat indiscriminately, just as dogs do. You know, they're always sniffing around on the ground. They're chewing on stuff that they should never eat. And, right? So this was a derogatory term that Jews would have used towards, towards Gentiles because of, of, of their diet. And so Paul's use of this term would have perked some ears up. Paul is using this term dogs. His readers here would have connected the dots there that, hey, that's a derogatory term. And he applies that description towards these false teachers. Why? And, and, and by what means? Here's the idea. Paul is saying that these false teachers, teachers are unclean, just as Jews would have viewed Gentiles as unclean because of their, their diet. Paul is identifying these false teachers as unclean because of, not their diet, because of their reliance on the works of the flesh. Because they are placing their confidence and their trust in what they do, the add-ons to the gospel, the works that they do with their own hands and their own lives, because their confidence is in themselves, he says they're unclean. And in a similar way that Jews would identify Gentiles as unclean and call them that derogatory term of dogs, Paul calls these false teachers dogs. Let us not mince words about these false teachers and their intentions and their purpose. Paul says false teaching, listening to, rubbing shoulders with, entertaining any gospel other than in Christ alone through grace alone is a false gospel. Second, Paul describes them more broadly as evil doers. More literally, we could even literally call them workers of evil. This phrase could be translated, how so? They're, they're preaching another gospel. And, and Paul desires for his readers to understand that when you compromise the integrity of the gospel in any way, shape, or form, it ceases to be the true gospel. Because these false teachers are promoting works of the flesh and preaching that one must add works of the law to be saved, these teachers are actually preaching evil. It is evil to pervert or distort the gospel in any way. Because at the moment of compromise, it is no longer Christ. And if it is no longer Christ, there is no longer atonement for sin. And if there is no longer an atonement for sin, we are still in our sin. This is why Paul is calling out these false teachers very clearly and directly, leaving no question about his thoughts and opinions of these false teachers leading people astray from the true gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why Paul went on to say so boldly in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verses 20, 23 and 24, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ, Paul said. 
Third, Paul describes these false teachers in verse number two as mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh. The third term that Paul uses for these false teachers is a play on words, essentially. And he's using this illustration of of circumcision to really, again, drive home a point of identifying these false teachers for really who they are. So the word for circumcision in the Greek is paratome. These false teachers are actually mutilators, which is katatome. So he's using a little play on words to use this term circumcision and mutilators of the flesh to identify that they're perverting the gospel. They're not promoting a true understanding of circumcision. In fact, there is no confidence that we can place in the flesh, even if one was circumcised, as Paul's later going to outline in chapter number three. So these false teachers, they were, they were preaching that people needed to physically be circumcised to be saved. Another work, another feather in a cap, something that I have done. This is a, a works-based salvation, which is a false gospel. But Paul would contend rightly that the requirement of any physical circumcision or any physical uh, act or any physical um, thing that would need to be done, any confidence that would be placed in in the flesh, he would unashamedly denounce the value of anything that he could bring to the table in regards to his own salvation. This will be a consistent theme of chapter three as we continue to work through it. So look for it as we continue to work our way down through these verses. There's no room for confidence in our own flesh in relation to the gospel. The one true gospel requires what? It requires a complete 100% abandonment of our own confidence and faith in ourselves. And we place that 100% complete confidence and faith in the finished work of Jesus. Theologian Matthew Harmon says this, thinking they are true sons of the kingdom, they are in fact the dogs left outside of the kingdom because of their insistence on Jewish supremacy. Because of their obsession with Judaism and the works and the law, ultimately this is the thing that they have placed their confidence in and that is the thing that keeps them from understanding and believing the true gospel. For sake of time, let's look at our final point. I gotta be careful saying that this morning. This truly is our third and final point. The timeless components of the gospel. We looked this morning first at the clear command to rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, the counterfeit identity, identity excuse me, of the false teachers. And thirdly, we're gonna look at the timeless components of the gospel. So continuing in on this idea of circumcision, this play on words between mutilators of the flesh and, and circumcision, Paul starts out verse number three and says, what for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. What in the world 
does Paul mean by that? So Paul declares this reality that we are the circumcision. This morning, I, I simply do not have time uh, to go through uh, an entire exhaustive study of, of circumcision and the Old Testament understanding of circumcision. But if you'll remember with me briefly, back a number of years ago, through our series of Genesis, uh, I believe, Pastor Dave, you had the privilege of, of maybe working through that particular topic. But what was circumcision? It was ultimately a sign of the covenant relationship that God the Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was a sign of the, the covenant relationship that he had ultimately with his people, Israel, nation of Israel. And so Paul here is figuratively using circumcision to point his readers to a relationship and away from works of the law. So literally he's saying their identity is circumcision. Their identity is what? A relationship, a covenant relationship through Christ to God the Father. This is, this is what Paul is, is drawing his readers to understand, to know, and to remember, and to believe. You don't need a work of circumcision. Why? Because we are circumcision. We have a relationship with God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. There are no additional works that need to be done. The veil has been torn. The relationship is restored through Jesus Christ. This is the beautiful hope that we have in the gospel. So the circumcision here that Paul is referring to is spiritual. It's internal, and this, this stands in stark contrast to what these false teachers are promoting. Paul supports this concept, this idea in another book, another letter that he wrote to the church at Rome and chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Verse 29, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So we are the circumcision, true believers that have placed their faith in the true gospel will always do what? Let's look at the second half of verse number three. For we are the circumcision, those that have that covenant relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So true believers that have placed their faith in the true gospel, they will always experience Holy Spirit-empowered worship that makes much of Christ. Let me say that one more time. What will the atmosphere and the environment be when true believers gather? They will always worship by the Holy Spirit their, their worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that worship will do what? It will magnify Christ. It will glory in Christ Jesus. It will make much of the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is what is produced 
as a result of us being the circumcision in Christ Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is the promise of this new covenant, is he not? The Holy Spirit seals us until the day of Christ Jesus. And as we worship, our hearts are stirred. Our unity is deepened. And we are encouraged by the Holy Spirit as we gather together and worship the Lord, both individually and together corporately. So the Holy Spirit is an active participant in our worship. Do you know that? Do you believe that? In your moment of difficult circumstances that you may be facing right now today, we know that the Holy Spirit is that, that, that comforter, that, that counselor, that, that paraclete that comes alongside us and, and ministers to us in our time of need when we don't even know what to verbalize or how to verbalize anything to the Lord. We know that the Holy Spirit is making intercession before the throne of God on our behalf what incredible hope and encouragement that is in our time of need. And so we worship by the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Both, all persons, equally God. And so when we worship, we Worship by the Holy Spirit. When we place our faith by God's grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ resides in our life. And when we worship, we worship by the Spirit. Goes on to say, and glory in Christ Jesus. This word glory if you start breaking down some of the words here in the original language, it has the idea of a branding iron. It could literally mean to burn or glow with the glory of Christ. We are the Lord's, and he has saved us. So what do we do? We glory, we revel, we delight in these beautiful realities because of what Jesus has done. And Paul finishes rightly by clearly proclaiming and restating the thesis of really the entire aspect of this chapter. He says what? And put no confidence in the flesh. Paul finishes rightly by clearly proclaiming the timeless components of the gospel will never include confidence in our own flesh. It will never include confidence in our own flesh. This morning, friends, are you putting confidence in your own flesh? Are you striving and working hard on your own behalf? Are you trying to figure out life, doing it on your own? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, literally make your way straight. When we lean on our own understanding, that is only going to end poorly for us. We have no wisdom in our own. 
strength. We have no answers in our own mind. We have nothing to offer ourselves or the Lord for that matter. So if you're striving or trusting, trying to earn favor in the eyes of God, Jesus says simply, stop. Stop. Let me do the work. I am the only one that could do the work. I have done the work. He went to a cross and declared, it is finished. The only one who could pay for the sins of the world has done that work. And he did it perfectly. So friends, there's no need for us to strive more. There's no need for us to work more. There's no need for us to try to be better. Because we never will. And we never can. Only Jesus could do that perfectly. And so what does Jesus say? He says, come to me. All you are weary, I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon me. For it's easy and my burden is light. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, he's promised that we will be saved. We looked at the clear command to rejoice in the Lord. We looked at the counterfeit identity of false teachers. And we finally looked at the timeless components of the gospel. This is how joy plays defense for our mind, our heart, and our soul. Do you need the reminder, the encouragement this morning to just simply stop and to go to the foot of the cross and to lay your burdens down and to receive grace and help for your time of need? I know I needed this reminder and I pray it's a help and blessing to you this morning. Would you join me in prayer as we close our preaching time this morning? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. I pray that as we continue to work our way through this series, through the book of Philippians, that we would learn more about who you are and more about who you would have us to be by your grace. I pray that there's maybe somebody here this morning who just needs to be encouraged, that they would remember this command in verse number one, finally, so then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Father, I pray that as we rejoice, that our mind and our hearts, it would be turned away from our present circumstances and we would, we would gaze into an empty tomb and find incredible hope this morning. I pray that we as the body of Christ would be willing to come alongside each other, to be transparent, to be honest and vulnerable with one another, to say, hey, you know what? I'm not doing okay. Friends, it's okay to not be okay. Because we have hope. We have Jesus. We have the gospel. We have one another. He's given us a church so that we can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill love Christ. Father, I pray that we would remember that joy plays defense. That if we haven't, by your grace, deployed joy in quite some time, that we would just soak and linger in the beauty of the gospel once again this morning and that our hearts would be glad and that we could, as the psalmist said, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We pray these things in your precious name, I pray.